Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're of a certain age, you will probably remember when ska music had its day. It was the mid-90s. You'd get behind the wheel of your Isuzu Amigo. You'd reach for the dial on the radio, tuned to the modern rock station. Within a couple minutes, you'd be listening to No Doubt or Sublime or the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. It's a time burned indelibly into all of our memories. Maybe one of the most interesting acts from that time, though, were the Aquabats. First, they took just as much influence from the specials as they did from other weirder bands like Ween and Devo. Second, they weren't just a band. They were really an experience. For more than two decades, the Aquabats have performed in superhero outfits and fought elaborately costumed villains on stage, sort of like a family-friendly guar. Anyway, what follows is an interview with Christian Jacobs, a.k.a. MC Bat Commander, the band's lead singer and frontman. Christian isn't just an onstage rock and roll with horns superhero. He is also the creator of the Aquabats TV show and of Yo Gabba Gabba, the beloved kids show. Conducting today's interview is my good friend and Jordan Jesse Go co-host. And besides those things, perhaps most importantly, a teenager from Orange County in the mid-1990s, Jordan Morris. Before we get into all that, let's kick things off with a song from the Aquabats' new record, Kooky Spooky in Stereo. This one is called Pajamazon. Christian Jacobs, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, thanks for having me. What's up, Jordan? How are you? Well, I'm I'm doing good. Uh, it's a thrill to talk to you. I've I've been attending Aquabat shows since junior high, and um, yeah, I'm just like thrilled that you guys are still around and uh, being super super weird. It's really cool. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, all right. Someone's got to do it, right? <laughs> did you grow up in Orange County then, Jordan? I did. Yeah. Oh. So I grew up in Mission Viejo. Uh, my mom still lives in Huntington Beach, and yeah, I was I went to high school in you know. 1995, 96, around the time of, you know, ska and punk, and it was it, it was a thrill. I was super into that scene, and it uh, was like a big part of my growing up, and, and just like awesome memories. I have nothing but awesome, fun memories attached to those times. What a great time to be in high school, 95, 96, 97. Like, what, there was so much going on in that scene in Orange County at that time, like, that's exciting to hear because it was a lot of fun looking back like, wow, all this stuff that went down and different clubs popping up all over and live music. And it was it was pretty fun and intense time. Good times. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Before we uh, talk about kind of your musical influences, I think it's important to talk about the Aquabats pop culture influences. 
it is such a soup. It's it's a it's a gumbo of stuff. It's superheroes. It's Saturday morning cartoons. It's monster movies. Um, yeah, I want to hear about the role that stuff played in your life. Was it, you know, the pop culture you were ingesting as a kid? Is it something you got into later? Uh, what are your early pop culture memories? Wow, so much. I mean. I was a TV kid, like a lot of kids in that kind of golden age of, I want to say golden age, probably like silver age, silver age of television. You know, you have golden age of comics and then you have the silver age of comics, which is kind of like all the Marvel and like really when the X-Men came into, you know, power and all that. And similarly with TV, there was so much going on in the like 70s, weird stuff for kids, you know, and going way, way back, obviously Sesame Street and Electric Company and uh, when Spider-Man would pop in from time to time and, uh, you know, teach us about punctuation on Electric Company, it was always like <laughs> the, the best, you know, and um, and so it, st- it started early, the pursuit of things that were weird and unexpected in pop culture. And then, it, you know, there was the Sid and Marty Croft shows and everything from you know, land of the lost. And then we, you know, being in LA growing up in Los Angeles, there, there was a weird sh- stations and cable access. And that's where I discovered shows like Johnny Sacco and his giant robot and Ultraman and all the, the, you know, the Japanese shows. And there was a show that would come on every weekend called the family film festival. And the host of the show also hosted another show called like the Popeye Hour or whatever. And he would, anyway, <laughs> long story short, so much weird stuff would come through like Pippi Longstockings and and the, you know, War of the Gargantuas and the Godzilla movies. And then just the blob and all, all kinds of like family films where, you know, giant monsters are smashing villages and, uh, you know, little girls with pigtails are picking up horses and throwing them across the street, you know, just weird <laughs> stuff. And I, my, myself and my brothers and my family, we always kind of gravitated towards that stuff. So yeah. And then punk rock happened and skateboarding and, and music. And, and then it all just kind of crashed in, to everything and became that's kind of what the aquabats became Was that stuff watching, you know, Ultraman and War of the Gargantuas, was that like family viewing in your family or was it something you had to like sneak late at night? My dad, uh, you know, once a month or once every other month would say, you guys are watching too much TV. And he would do something like, you know, take the TV and hide it in the garage or, but we were pretty like wide open to watch kind of whatever we wanted, you know it crossed the line sometimes with like some of the late night shows like Benny Hill or things like that would come on. And my parents would be like, you can't watch that or, you know, which made us want to watch it even more. But, um, for the most part, yeah, even like war films, like my dad 
was an extra in a couple of when he was in the army he was in a couple of war movies like the devil's brigade and so that was one thing my dad and i would watch war movies and westerns and so we didn't really go to the movies a ton because you know not having the funds to take a family of five kids to the movies so we just spent a lot of time watching tv you know just like mike tv <laughs> Willy Willy Wonka. Yeah. So it wasn't stuff we had to sneak uh, per se, because I think a lot of a lot of that stuff, which is kind of a big difference between our generations is my parents were like, oh, that, you know, Godzilla, that's for kids. So then they would leave the room, you know, and right. then whereas nowadays I want to see what my kids are watching and watch it with them. And if I don't like it, then I don't want them to watch it more less about uh, it being offensive or something, but more like being intellectually offensive. Like <laughs> that show's poorly made. You're not watching it. You know what I mean? So right. it's, which is totally different than my parents. Cause uh, again, I feel like parents these days are more like kids. Anyway, that's saying something about society. So maybe we shouldn't <laughs> go down that road. It's a dark road, Jordan. It's a dark road. <laughs> <laughs> what about music? What kind of music was on in your house when you were growing up? So yeah, growing up, music was a big thing. My early memories, my dad had this, he had like a wooden box of seven inch records and he pretty much just gave it to us. Like, go for it, do, do what you want. And had like a lot of fifties music, you know, Carl Perkins and Elvis. And he had these records that were like, they're kind of like Dr. Demento from the from the fifties, you know, like yakety yak, don't talk back. But there were these ones where there would be like an announcer, and he would say, you know, downtown New York is being attacked by, and then he would like cut in like lines from songs like one eyed, one eyed, fine purple people leader. <laughs> you know, it would cut in lines from different songs, and that that was a record we listened to a lot. So between the, those records and then what musically was happening in Los Angeles at the time uh, with KROQ and New Wave and Punk and also Dr. Demento on KMET. There was just a, like this kind of avalanche of weird, fun music that was happening like in an undercurrent of the pop culture in LA for, for kids, which it wasn't really made for kids, but there was so much weird stuff going on in the late 70s in music that was theatrical and weird. And, you know, punk was theatrical. It was like very, it wasn't necessarily super musical, but it was very theatrical. And so a lot of that stuff was really attractive to me as a young kid. So even just listening to the music, you could kind of visualize what these singers look like, or, you know, you'd listen to something weird on the radio from Brian Eno, you know, babies on fire, you know, like throw them in the, like these weird songs. And, um, it just really added to the imagination of everything. Anyway, I could go on and on about like musical influences, but that at a young, really young age became a big music fan, like really into music. So, but mostly weird stuff, you know, like double Dutch bus or Frankie Smith and like, Weird Al and uh, Barnes and Barnes and like th just things like that. And then plugging it together that one of the guys in Barnes and Barnes was uh, Billy Mummy from Twilight Zone and Lost in Space was like, whoa, yeah, wow, you know, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> was the idea of band as superheroes, you know, was that part of the original concept or did the, you know, 
did that layer come later? So we started in 94 and right around that time in music, there was this kind of burgeoning indie scene going on in Southern California, Rocket from the Crypt and like indie music. And there was kind of also this resurgence of surf bands like the Mummies and the Phantom Surfers and... And there's this, there was this surf scene going on and I was getting, re- cause I really loved the ventures growing up. That was like one of my favorite bands, like the instrumental surf band, the ventures. And they just kind of stood above all the other surf bands. They're, they're like basically the best surf band ever is the ventures, you know? So, you know, and I was learning how to play some of their songs and there was this scene going on with the ventures, but at, or, or with surf, surf music, but it was kind of an older, a little more like snootier scene. It was a little more like over 21 crowd that, you know, they would quiz you on if you had pre-CBS amps or, you know, what year is your Fender Jazzmaster made? And <laughs> it, it, You know what I mean? It wasn't really, fr- it wasn't super inclusive. And then you would go to ska shows and it was like anyone could go. There was guys, girls, anyone, everyone was accepted. If you, whoever, whatever you wanted to do or be or dress like, it didn't matter. As long as you were there, you were part of this scene. And I kind of felt like I was obviously too young to be part of the original punk scene, but that kind of ska scene in Orange County at that time was so inclusive and so like there was no fights because it was just a bunch of nerds. Like it was just a (laughs) bunch of people that wanted to have fun together. And so... When we started the Aquabats, the idea for the Aquabats, it, we I was kind of coming off the let's let's do something that's like the Stingrays or you know the Aqua Velvets or the Mummies, you know the somethings, and then we kind of bounced some names around. And the idea it definitely di- didn't take shape from the beginning. It was just kind of like, what if we just called it the Aquabats? And then you know my roommate. Chad, who's also known as Crash McLarson in the band, the bass player, and then our other buddy, our surf pal Boyd, he he was like, okay, cool, rad. And then Chad knew some people and said, okay, guys, hey, I got us a gig for this Saturday. And we were like, dude, we haven't even written any songs. He's like, that doesn't matter. If you have a name of, of your band, just book a show and you'll figure out the songs along the way. So we literally had one practice and we and we uh we wrote like three or four songs and they were really dumb and then that next saturday we played a show like literally we came up with the idea the aquabats the name of the band and then we had a show that next saturday and and the way that it kind of morphed into what it is is boyd our surfer buddy who played trumpet also known as catboy in the aquabats he showed up and he his day job was he worked at a wetsuit factory and he showed up with these neoprene silver Buck Rogers looking helmets and he made like sideburns on them because of course this was the 90s. And if you go back and watch any 90s movies, you'll see that sideburns were pretty cool, <laughs> which is it's kind of hard to watch now. But, they, you know, he had these like Dawson's Creek, James Vanderbeek sideburns of this Buck Rogers helmet. And we were laughing so hard because it was so dumb. And he was like, I made them for everyone in the band. And we we wore these silver 
helmets, and then that's basically the Aquabats were born from there. And then, because people would ask, why do you wear these helmets, or why are you dressing like this? And then we just kept pushing it further and further and further into the lore of the superheroes, you know? So the ska scene that you were a part of really, like, blew up in a big way, you know, in 95, 96. Do you remember the first time you thought, oh, maybe this is going to become like a thing? Yeah, you know, when when No Doubt's record Tragic Kingdom hit and it was a don't or oh, I'm just a girl was the first big hit. And then I listened to the record after I'd heard on the radio uh, the, the single and I was like, this is going to be so huge. This is going to, this is good. This is a good thing. But again, I didn't think like we're next in line. Cause I always thought the Aquabats were, we were not poised to take U2's crowd of, you know, <laughs> legitimate, legitimate rock and roll. We, we were always going to be kind of on the fringe, I guess, because, because of the nature of the costumes. It's just like Devo. I mean, which was a band, obviously, that we idolized and loved as kids. But, you know, Devo never really, I mean, Whip It was a mainstream hit for sure. And Whip It was a bigger hit than any of our songs had, would, would ever be. They were playing on different levels and people don't really want to, they don't really want to mess with that. But definitely when No Doubt got big and then Sublime's uh, single hit, that that actually started a, a little bit of a, a bidding war between a lot of bands in the in Southern California, a lot of record companies were coming to bands and saying, you know, Real Big Fish got pulled in and Save Ferris and a number of, you know, our contemporaries that we we were playing with almost every weekend were getting signed to label deals. And we were, uh, we weren't like expectatious. Is that a word? We didn't really <laughs> expect it to happen, but... I remember we played a show at the Glass House in Pomona and Paul Tillette, who is, you know, the creator, uh, you know, of Coachella, the Coachella Music Festival. And he he was the president then of Golden Voice Promotions Company. Golden Voice was the big, you know, you if a Golden Voice show, they always had the coolest shows, best bands, especially punk stuff. And he came to us and he said... Um, I want to start a record label and I want to sign you guys. And we were like, whoa, Paul Tillette, this is legit. And he said, uh, he's like a few years ago, I had the same feeling that I get when I watch you guys with another band. And I wanted to start a label with this band. And I just never, I never did it. And I kind of regret it. But I get that same feeling when I see you guys play. And and that band was no doubt. And they were already like super big at that point. And, there, and we did get some other offers from some other labels, but... Once someone like Paul Tillette asks you to be a part of his label, we were like, okay, we're in. We're we're totally. And that that was the record that became uh, the Fury of the Aquabats, which was our hit Super Rad and, you know, Martian Girl and some of those other Aquabat hits. I've got a small friend who has a bad friend who had a big friend who gave birth to many friends with a flashlights to the sky. We waited for them to land. Even more to come with Christian Jacobs, the Aquabats have fought literally dozens of monsters on stage, night after night, telling story after story. How do they keep track of all of it? Is there an Aquabats show Bible? We'll find out. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. This episode of Life Kit, we're getting intimate. Exploring yourself is a really great way to, one, pass the time, but also just to get to know yourself better. Understanding the power of touch and self-pleasure. How self-appreciation can spark deeper engagement with ourselves and the world. Listen now to NPR's Life Kit. Hey, it's Jesse. What you're about to hear is real. Hey, this is Chris. Hi, Chris. It's Jesse calling from Maximum Fun. Hey, Jesse. I heard that you got into a car accident. Yeah, I was listening to Stop Podcasting Yourself, and I just laughed so hard that I uh, slammed into a construction barrier. Do <laughs> uh... you remember what it was that was so funny? I will never forget, I'm sure. They started talking about Vegas and the, you know, if it happens here, it stays here, and that slogan. And then Graham was talking about, oh, you know, wasn't there some other slogan for another commercial? I was like a commercial for food and it said like whatever's in there stays in there i can't remember what it was clams or something (laughs) (laughs) clams just so ridiculous and man i got lightheaded i was laughing so hard next thing i know (laughs) smash they are they are just brilliantly funny so i talked to dave and graham from stop podcasting yourself we would like to pay your car repair bill is that okay that, I mean, that would be super nice, Jesse. I really uh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening to my pal Jordan Morris's conversation with Christian Jacobs. Christian is the frontman of the band The Aquabats, who got their start in the ska scene of the mid-1990s. They've since evolved into a genre-bending, family-friendly touring band with a truly bonkers stage presence. Christian also created the Aquabats TV show and Yo Gabba Gabba, the kids' show that aired on Nickelodeon for nearly a decade. Let's get back into it. The Aquabats eventually made their way to uh, to TV. There was an Aquabats TV show that existed on a network that I don't think is around anymore called Hub, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. You now do the show uh, online, but I'm wondering about that first incarnation of it. What was it like pitching the band to a network? And was it a hard thing to explain to TV executives? Absolutely. So right around 97, 98, I, I kind of could see that like the only way the Aquabats could become something that we could call a career is it, because the music industry was so fickle and diff- and changed was if we kind of steered it into the TV. It just made sense. And so early on, like this is 1998, we started floating it out there that the Aquabats were going to do a TV show. And this is before the internet. This is before social media. This is before even like really people had cell phones. I mean, some people did, but they were out of our tax bracket. You know, I mean, they, you just it just wasn't a thing, but we just started floating it out there. And, um, you know, we talked to some people and managers and networked a little bit. And eventually we ended up pitching 
our show to Disney, Buena Vista TV. And we had a deal with Disney in 1998 and 99. We did a pilot for the Aquabats TV show and it was pretty bad. It, it was pretty terrible and it wasn't exactly what we wanted to do. And it, it just, it, it didn't get picked up and it didn't really go anywhere, but it, it became kind of an obsession. And, um, you know, that obsession eventually led to creating Yo Gabba Gabba with my friends and some of the guys in the band and, with the success of Yo Gabba Gabba, we we were starting to get asked like, well, what else do you guys have? And it had been long enough away from 1998. In fact, it had almost been a whole decade. 2008 was when we did another pilot for the Aquabats, and then we got a deal with the Hub. So um, it was just one of those things that I always thought the Aquabats could, if it could make it onto the screen, people would understand it a little bit more and realize that it wasn't so serious and it's... It, it wasn't taking ska seriously. It wasn't taking music seriously. It wasn't definitely we weren't taking ourselves serious. It was just something that was fun. So, yeah, it, it, it was hard to explain to people in the beginning what, what we were trying to do because reality TV at the time, like the real world was so popular and everyone we pitched was like, why don't you guys just make it a reality show about your band? And we were like, no, no, no. <laughs> No reality, please. Like enough with the reality stuff. We wanted to make the like anti-reality show. We wanted to make something that was surreal and weird and like the stuff we watched as kids, you know, like said Marty Croft and Johnny Sacco and Ultraman. Like that's what I wanted to make. And I felt like there was a whole big generation that grew up watching reality shows that w would watch the Aquabats version of Ultraman and be like, whoa, this now we're talking. Like, <laughs> There's no made up drama, you know what I mean? It's just silly. So anyway, that that it was a tough sell and it took a long time to actually get it going and we, you know, fortunately Yo Gabba Gabba was a a really great hit and it helped it helped us to kind of stay alive so and, and get it and get a TV show. Today's gonna be the best day of my life by far. I've no particular reason why I think today's gonna be so nice, but today's gonna be the best day of my life so far. No, it's not my birthday or the end of school, and I didn't win the lottery or anything that cool. I didn't get a trophy for something great I've done. When I say today's gonna be so great, it's only just because, just because Because this interview is for NPR, I am contractually obligated to try and find your your personal pain. Sure. To prove that, you know, within every clown there is a sad clown. I think I actually found the way in and I and I and I and I want to ask you about the song um Best Day of My Life, which I think is just a, a terrific <laughs> Aquabat song. And in the song, the narrator is talking about how the coming day is going to be the best one of their life. And they don't have any evidence to back this up. It's just, this is going to be the best day. And they keep saying it and right. they keep saying it until it kind of sounds like madness. It kind of sounds like this yeah. character is going insane, trying to stay positive. And yes, to me, that seemed like the narrator could be a 
you know, guy who has to dress up like a superhero and make people laugh every night, even <laughs> though he maybe doesn't want to. Um, hey, now. <laughs> do, you, do you ever have to, like, summon the goofball when you don't feel like being a goofball? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they have that thing cameo now, and this isn't like a shameless plug for for get a cameo with the bat commander, but you know, I'll get like some orders to draw, you know, to be the bat commander and to give a message to someone's birthday or something. And that's awesome because especially with last year, not being able to tour and there's no money coming in for a lot of bands and musicians, like things like cameo have been really helpful, but you know, it's just like, I got to draw that mustache on sometimes every day during the week. And when we're on tour too, sometimes it just, you know, like you'll play a show and you'll go check into the hotel in the middle of the night and you walk up and you've, I've got my mustache and my blacked out tooth and I'll be like, I have a reservation. They're like, nope, sorry, no reservations. You know what I mean? Like there's just times where it's very, Aquabats is very spinal tap. It's very like all that stuff is real. Like, you know, going to a hotel and you don't, they don't have your reservations, but your rival band is at the same hotel and they've got checked in and they're playing down the street at the bigger venue and like all those things in that movie are so genius because it's so real. But, you know, growing up and not to go off on a, a tangent, but if NPR wants some pain, I'm going to I'll unleash a little bit. But Yeah, let's hear it. You know, growing up, my parents were very like super positive people and very like always want to be positive and always tried to look at the good in everybody and in people. And then eventually what was weird is my parents got divorced and that was right around the time I was you know, neck deep in, into skateboarding and punk rock. And it was, it, it was a painful time because I always thought my family was going to be together and we were like this positive unit. And then when life slaps you a different tail, you know, how do you stay positive? And I, I got really into like negative music, heavy metal and really fast, hardcore agnostic front and all those like New York hardcore bands and, I just was, I was just unhappy, you know, and I just realized that like, even when things are the worst, if you can turn it positively, you're just going to end up being happy. And I've had plenty of pain and plenty of things happen. And, but just like the, the worst time in my life when I reacted with negativity to negativity, it just made things worse. And I, and I'm grateful to my parents, you know, my family for raising me to believe that like, things are always going to get better and and to count your blessings when things are good because they're probably going to get worse soon like they had like that there's a song hello good night from the aquabats where i talk about that you know that song where when things are going good just look around the corner cuz something something's coming around the corner but when things are bad don't worry it's going to get better and i just i like having that perspective and i've been able to like really see that happen with my career and it hasn't all it's not picture perfect we're not you know the biggest band of the world but it's kind of crazy to think that we've been a band for 25 years and we're still doing it and kids are liking it young kids are into it like moms that used to come to our shows when they were in high school are now like driving their high school kids to our shows it's just just like weird you know but that that there's there is that pain in the like why are we still doing this thing that we've, we definitely went through as a band and we had members drop out. And when Travis left the band, it was like a big, it was like a big bummer, you know, for me, it was, it's, it's, it sounds really dumb, but 
when Travis left and joined Blink and they became like the biggest band in the world, like that was really hard on me. Like I, it was, I don't know if the other guys even cared because they, they saw it coming. I didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. You know, I didn't see it coming. So, um, you know, like, like times like that were dark. There were some dark times for the Aquabats. Like, why should we, why are we doing this? Like this, no one is going to ever get it. We'll never become as popular or as financially stable as a Blink-182 or some of these other bands that were our contemporaries. Why are we still doing it? And then it always flopped back to like, when we're not doing it, it's it's worse, if that makes sense. When you're not, when you're not being positive and you're you're giving into the negative energy, it makes things way worse. So just keep doing it, having fun, and it just it will rise. You know, it it will just you'll you'll get out of the pit like Bane or whatever. <laughs> I think it's really important to talk about the Aquabats live shows. What can you hope to see when you go to see the Aquabats? We have so much fun when we play like we like to move around we like to dance we like to encourage people to dance but for a long time you know since the late 90s we've been doing like video screen behind us which now every it's kind of every band does that but you know we're kind of playing it like it's a kid's show in a way because we'll, sometimes in between songs we'll cut to like a homemade commercial for a product that doesn't exist monsters will come out on stage or guests or and usually it's if there's someone backstage that is our guest musician, but it's usually like our road crew, um, you know, putting on costumes and wigs and playing characters. And so there's like a big theatrical thing that goes on in between songs, but then we really try to like have blocks of songs to play the songs that people came to see. So it's not just like um, we're playing a song and then we stop and then tune a guitar and it's quiet. And then we play another song. It's like in between this, the song sets we're doing things like you know having a karate demonstration or uh, a giant dinosaur has come out and we have to find a way for it to get off the stage or Danny DeVito will show up and you know who knows <laughs> like so much weird stuff happens at our shows that a lot of times we don't even really plan for it until the very last second like even even sometimes literally while we're on stage something will happen and it just feels organic to like Anything could happen at any moment, but it's also very family friendly. And that's definitely by design. We, we want to keep things like inclusive, you know, the X on the hand for the all ages. Like I took that to heart as a teenager and I, cause I wanted to go see shows and there were shows I couldn't go see. And so we want to keep the like content and even the bands that open up for us and we work together really inclusive so that literally you could have the youngest kids come and the oldest kids come and everyone would have fun still, you know, that that makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned that some of the Aquabats, you know, villains are kind of like improvised on the spot or improvised, oh, yeah. you know, 20 minutes before showtime. There is so much storytelling, you know, within the band. Is there an Aquabats continuity? Do you keep track of all the villains and their backstories or, you know, does it all just kind of like, go away when the show's over i think yeah definitely we keep track of it and um sometimes it sometimes if we're playing you know close enough there'll be like a continuation and we've done stuff where we had two shows in a row where like the it was like a to be continued between the same guy or the same bad guy but yeah there's 
And for a while it was all cataloged. And I think there's like a fan Wikipedia online that have, they've done a good job of like, you know, laying down who these bad guys are and where they came from and what their backstories are. And just based on little stuff we've said, and even if it's like, we just made it up on the spot, you know, like we were in England and uh, we didn't have a bad guy. And one of our, our friends, he's like the sixth member of the band. His name is Matt Gorney. And he's like, we're like, we don't have a bad guy for tonight's show. And he's like, don't worry, I got something. And uh, he came out in the middle of the show and he had this silver spandex suit on that we had used like for an alien, but he'd turned it inside out so that his like chest was showing. It was like hairy chest. He had a mustache. His hair was slicked back and he had like chiclets on his teeth, like basically Freddie Mercury, but he was holding a loaf of bread and he said, I am Freddie Mercury. (laughs) And he started, he started throwing bread at people in England and it was at that moment I saw people switch. Like, okay, I like these guys. <laughs> this I like. They know they're stupid, and but they're actually kind of smart too. So it was just you know dad jokes and pretty Mercury and anyway, yeah. There is there is some uh, we do keep, try to keep track of, especially the, the monsters or the bad guys that resonate or, or like people that people like, you know. So I'm sure we haven't seen the end of Brady Mercury. <laughs> Part of the Bat Commander's look, well, it's it's a it is quite a look. Uh, it, it, there's a drawn-on handlebar mustache, but also one of your your teeth is blacked out. <laughs> um, how how do you how do you black out a tooth every night? Back in the day, we didn't have no one had facial hair. I didn't have a mustache, but um, we showed up to play a a show, and this is like the Fury of the Aquabats 1997 tour. And someone had like taken a Sharpie and like drawn a mustache on the picture and blacked out our tooth and drawn funny beards on the picture. So that night for the show, we drew mustaches on ourselves with magic, with Sharpies, with, with a magic marker and just to match the poster because (laughs) it was just silly, you know, someone had vandalized our poster and instead of like getting negative about it, we just used it as like, oh, that's a good idea. So we just went for it. Anyway, for some reason, it stuck, and it just felt right for my character to have a mustache and a blacked-out tooth. So literally to this day, I still I use a Sharpie. I use a Sharpie on my mustache and a Sharpie on my tooth. Keeping it real. You just got to dry your tooth off and uh, just you know scribble it on there, and then it just brushes right off. <laughs> it's harder to get off your, fa- your skin than your tooth. It'll come off your teeth pretty easy. Yeah, I believe it. But uh, people are always like, isn't that, you know, aren't you going to die from that i'm like well (laughs) i've been doing it for 20 years so (laughs) there's something in sharpie that's either preserving my life or building this giant tumor behind my uh glasses or something (laughs) i don't know who who knows Uh, one day i'll just drop dead from sharpie poisoning but kids don't try this at home or if you do uh make sure you have your parents permission (laughs) (laughs) christian thanks so much for being on bullseye thank you jordan this was awesome Christian Jacobs, folks. The Aquabats' new album is called Kooky Spooky in Stereo. It's their first in nearly 10 years. We'll have a link to buy it on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Let's go out on one more song from the new record. This one is called Skeleton Inside. Jordan Morris, who conducted our interview, 
is not only the co-host of the comedy podcast Jordan Jesse Go with yours truly, he is also the co-author of the new graphic novel Bubble. You can pre-order it now at your favorite book or comic store. It's really great. I've read it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, everyone is buzzing about the film Santa Jaws. It's a movie about a shark who wears one of those red Christmas uh, Santa Claus hats on his fin. It's a real movie. I don't know. This is what my kid is into. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We could help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.